Good day, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've decided to join us today. What were Black Bottom and Paradise Valley? And why did they go away? In some ways, those are pretty simple questions. And those simple questions should be sitting at the heart of the discussions about I-375, the short freeway extension that comes into the east side of downtown Detroit. The plans to get rid of the freeway, which was built as part of the destruction of those neighborhoods, should be informed directly by the answers to those questions. What were Black Bottom and Paradise Valley? And why did they go away? That's what a reckoning, or at least the beginning of a reckoning, might look like. But for many people in our area, those questions and those answers are somewhat elusive. Mythology, ignorance, historical whitewashing, they all play a role in the forgetting that has erased so much of what was there before the highway. So here, in the second episode of our mini-series, Reckoning 375, we want to take a trip back to the beginning. Fill in the blanks and re-establish the record of what these two neighborhoods were, why they were important, and why they went away. It's where we begin the conversation here, and we've got two really great guests to help us do that. Jamon Jordan is the city of Detroit's official historian and founder of the Black Scroll Network History and Tours. Jamon, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Also with us is Emily Kudel. She is a Detroit-based designer, researcher, and educator. She's the creator of Black Bottom Street View, which is an immersive representation of the historic Detroit neighborhood. Emily, welcome back to Detroit Today as well. Thank you for having me. So, Jamon, I'm going to start with you. That question I asked at the open. What was Black Bottom? What was Paradise Valley? Again, I think there are a lot of people who either never knew or have forgotten. So let's start with what those neighborhoods were and how they came to be what they were here in the city. Yes, um, both Black Bottom and Paradise Valley were neighborhoods that existed in the lower east side of the city of Detroit. And um, Black Bottom, of course, originates as an area where, because of the Savoyard River, it has this dark, rich soil. And so the French name it Faune Noir, which of course is Black Bottom. And so they farm there and they build ribbon farms and they're thin strip farms that start at the river and go north from the river. And many of the streets in the Black Bo- former Black Bottom neighborhood are named after the former ribbon farm owners like Shane and Dubois and St. Aubin and Rivard. Those are the ribbon farm owners who existed in the lower east side of the city of Detroit, they built their ribbon farms when the French arrived in 1701. And so uh, as time progressed, of course, 
when the French come, of course, they're enslaving both indigenous people and Africans. So black people have been living in Black Bottom since the 1700s. And of course, by the 1800s, there's a vibrant black movement, really what we know as the Underground Railroad, the fight against slavery. So the first black churches exist in that neighborhood, the first black businesses, and many of the black leaders against the against enslavement um, and fighting against slavery and helping people escape. George D. Baptiste, William and Julia Lambert, William Webb, they're living in Black Bottom. But by the 1900s, when the auto industry picks up, hundreds of thousands of African Americans are leaving the South and coming to the North and in the Midwest and the West. And many of them are coming to the city of Detroit because the auto industry has picked up and Henry Ford begins offering $5 a day to all workers in 1914. And so because of housing discrimination, although these African Americans are leaving the South to get jobs, Many of them can only live in neighborhoods that already have a black presence. And Black Bottom already has a black presence. It's been there, there's black people who've been there since the 1700s. There's already black churches, there's already black businesses. So it becomes the most highest concentrated area for African Americans who come to the city of Detroit. And by the 1930s, it's predominantly black. And by the 1940s, it's almost all black. Mm. And then if African Americans are here, of course, they start businesses, they start restaurants, hotels, clubs, theaters, um, bakeries, all the kinds of things that they need, um, um, clothing stores. But of course, because of discrimination in property ownership, this um, business district has to be close to where African-Americans already live. (laughs) And so that business district is known as Paradise Valley. Both of these neighborhoods had a significant number of Jewish Americans. And so African-American migration in and around the city of Detroit tends to follow Jewish migration in and around the city of Detroit. And so African-Americans are renting and buying spaces from people who, in many cases, were Jewish and who had moved away. Mm. And so Hastings Street becomes the main street through both neighborhoods. It runs through Black Bottom, starting at Jefferson. Um, uh, It's it's entering Black Bottom at, at Jefferson. And then it goes all the way up to East Grand Boulevard, but the Jefferson to Gratiot area is Black Bottom. That is now I-375. And then once you pass Gratiot, you're entering the Paradise Valley area, which of course today is Ford Field, Comerica Park, 36th District Court, the gym theater, the parking lots associated with the arenas, and of course, 75, yeah. um, 75 freeway. All of that would have been Paradise Valley. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Emily, as I said, you've created this rather impressive uh, representation of Black Bottom and and what it was. Uh, talk about that work, what brought you to it, and again, the significance of this area here in the city of Detroit. So the Black Bottom Street View exhibit is really just a tiny area within the area that Jaman just described, um, a fraction of Black Bottom, probably about a tenth or mm-hmm. less. Mm-hmm. And the exhibit is made up of photographs of Black Bottom that were taken as a part of the eminent domain process by the city of Detroit in the late 1940s and early 1950s as the city was preparing for the legal process to seize the property so that they could demolish the neighborhoods and sell the land to developers to develop new housing on the land. And so by some stroke of luck, Some of the photographs from that legal process survived. And one of the things that I think is really, um, really sad about 
the history of those records in the city of Detroit is that so many of them are missing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I was, I was teaching at University of Louisville last year, or sorry, at the University of Kentucky last year, and we were doing research in Louisville, and they have all of their urban renewal records in three different archives in the city, mm-hmm. absolutely pristine, completely complete. Wow. Anything you wanted to know, you can go to any one of those archives. There are a number of people who are experts in those areas, and they can walk you through the archives. And here, in a, a city where we have the, and, and I, I'm not 100% sure of this, but I'm almost 100% sure that this is the largest area in any American city that was demolished mm-hmm. for urban renewal. Mm-hmm. And we have just fragments. We have nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Jaman, talk about why that's true. I mean, I talked in the open about mm-hmm. mythology and ignorance and forgetting, and that's an important part of the story of Black Bottom and Paradise Valley. Yes, um, so it's very important because uh, we have to understand that a few things happen. In 1943, there's a race riot that happens in the city of Detroit. One of the consequences of that race riot is that commissions are created, a state commission and a city committee, and they investigate the race riot, and the state committee overwhelmingly blames the African-American community. The city is a little bit better, but even they for the most part, blame the African-American community for this race riot that occurred in 1943. One of the consequences of that is this idea to to do urban renewal, to destroy this highly concentrated neighborhood. Um, In 1946, the city council will approve, at that time, Edward Jeffries, he's the mayor, this is his plan. And so in 1946, the city council will approve that plan and the city, of course, doesn't really have the funds to destroy Black Bottom. Black Bottom is pretty big. Again, as Emily stated, um, it's larger than the Black Bottom Street View um, exhibit. It is west, west, the western border, its farthest western border is Brush. Its farthest eastern border is McDougal. Jefferson is the um, southern border, and Gratiot is the northern border. So Lafayette Park, Elmwood Park, Greektown, um, Bricktown, all of those would have at one point been considered part of Black Bottom. The city does not have the funds to destroy that right after World War II. So the federal government passed the National um, Housing Act of 1949, which many people just call the Urban Renewal Act, where they're giving cities money for slum clearance. And um, at this point, Jeffries is no longer the mayor now. Cobo has been elected mayor, Albert Cobo. And of course, He's going to use those funds to destroy Black Bottom. And it's, his administration is one of the major reasons why we do not have the records that we ought to have. Because they destroyed them. They destroyed them. That's yeah. right. They destroyed the records because the federal government wanted to find, they wanted a listing of all of these people so that they could be made, not whole, but they could be compensated in some form. But if they, there's no records, then they could not be compensated. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so, Emily, you, you dive into this trying to kind of piece it back together, and it seems like it's a, a, tattered, a tattered curtain that you're trying to figure out uh, where the pieces, the missing pieces are. Yeah. And, and really, I mean, I came into this project so ignorant of so many things about this history. And so it's been a huge learning process for me and, you know, people like Jaman and Marsha, who I think was on last week, and Bert, who was on last week, have all taught me, you know, really, really critical things and provided guidance for me for me in learning about it. I think um, one of the things I wanted to maybe add to the story Jaman was telling about the 
photographs and why they were taken as a part of that eminent domain process is that they were taken almost immediately after the Housing Act of 1949 mm -hmm. was passed. So it was passed in July 1949, and less than a week later, the first photographs are dated in that collection. So they were ready to go. They had all of their plans in place. And I think, you know, it, it was really a kind of amalgamation of a whole series of demolition projects over a period of 25 years mm -hmm. from, you know, all of the different housing projects that Jamal listed, mm -hmm. plus the freeway demolition, um, plus the Detroit Medical Center development, mm -hmm. Ford Field, mm -hmm. um, all kinds of other projects that were a part of the erasure of those communities. Um, and so I think, you know, for for us, um, I, I, I work with an organization called Black Bottom Archives, mm -hmm. um, which has really um, taken the Black Bottom Street View project and made it something that's sustainable and that we can keep putting in front of people. Um, and they've also taken the project in all kinds of other directions and built out a digital archive. Um, they collect oral histories. Um, mm -hmm. And we're in the middle of a project right now called Sankofa Community Research, which is a community-based research project that we're doing to um, try to answer some of the questions that Stephen was asking at the beginning of the show. Mm -hmm. like, how do you wrap your head around what was lost, what was destroyed? Mm -hmm. um, and, and how can we make sure that those kinds of conversations don't get limited to like taking an inventory of the exact business that was in a demolished building and how much that business was worth at the time, but actually taking a fuller look at the kind of community infrastructure that was dismantled, the public spaces and the real kind of communal life that's so much larger than the impact on any single family or business that yeah. you could put a number towards. Yeah, yeah. That that idea of that culture that Emily's talking about that goes beyond uh, this family or that business is what makes Black Bottom and Paradise Valley matter that's so right. much to us, Jamon. That's right, that's right. Because um, in, in Black Bottom um, had enough housing for about 30,000 people. At its height, it had about 140,000 people living in it. So they're overcrowded. They're highly concentrated. It's a very densely populated neighborhood. And then, of course, Paradise Valley, which is adjacent to it, north and west of it, is, um, a, again, a, a small in, in comparison to the city, of course. And it has about 350 Black-owned businesses in or very close to it. And so that is this rich history that is wiped out. Um, and um, we, we, we've, of course, lost the, the things themselves. We lost the businesses, many of the churches, some of the schools, the, the properties, the, the restaurants, the stores, the bakeries, the record stores. We lost that, we lost the streets. But not only do we lose that, we lost the memory in many cases. We lost the history of these places. And so when we're trying to piece these things together, we're only getting part of the story because so much of it was wiped out. And it's going to take a generation of scholars to try to piece together much of what we lost. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to continue talking about the history of Black Bottom and Paradise Valley as part of our mini-series here on Detroit Today called Reckoning 375. And we'll be right back with more Detroit Today. We are in the middle of our second episode of our mini-series here on WDET called Reckoning 375, which is taking a closer look at the effort to reimagine I-375, which is this very small highway extension that 
comes into the east side of downtown Detroit. Before I-375 was there, though, that was a neighborhood. It was two neighborhoods, really, Black Bottom and Paradise Valley. I do want to spend a little more time uh, talking about uh, what was lost in in Black Bottom and Paradise Valley and how we should be thinking about that now. I want to start with the idea of what was owed to the people mm-hmm. who uh, who had their homes mm-hmm. taken or mm-hmm. their businesses closed uh, and, and kind of cast forward to how we should be thinking about those things today. Jamon, I'll, I'll start with you. Yes. Um, so uh, the, what happened to Black Bottom in Paradise Valley happened in stages. The first stage is the destruction of Black. They begin the Urban Renewal Project um, the, the Gratiot Redevelopment Project is one of the names they gave it in, in the neighborhood that we now know as Lafayette Park. So that begins r- right after the federal government passed the National Housing Act. So they begin destroying homes, um, giving eviction notices to renters. Most of the people living in Black Bottom were renters and making offers to the owners or threatening them with eminent domain. Many of the people, of course, who even got something were given unjust compensation. They were given, they were not given what their property was really worth. And of course, renters were given nothing but an eviction notice and told to move out. And then um, as that is basically demolished, the plan to destroy Hastings Street happens to build the I-375 freeway, which is mostly the business strip. But on the east side of I-375 or Hastings, you're not only is Hastings destroyed, Half of the streets that run into Hastings are destroyed to make way for that freeway. And so you get that as well. And, the, and you lose churches, you lose schools, you lose all of those things. And then when we get to the Paradise Valley area, which is mostly businesses, not all, but mostly businesses, then the people who own those businesses are given unjust compensation. And many of the African-American business owners, because of housing and property discrimination, were not the true owners of the land. They are on land contracts mm. because the, the, it's not really feasible because of racial restrictive covenants to sell them the actual property. So they own the building, I mean, they own the business, they own the restaurant, the store, but the land is owned by a white owner. So the white owner will get paid and something, not even what they should have been paid, but the African-American business owner will get nothing in many of those cases. So you got about 10% of the people who got something, but they didn't get what they should have gotten, but they got something. But everybody else really were um, removed and kicked out and got nothing. This will um, really hurt black business development for a generation yeah. because these people mm-hmm. have to start from scratch all over again. They've lost everything, mm-hmm. every, all the money and wealth and energy that they poured into their businesses, their homes, their apartment buildings, their restaurants has been gone in just a flurry and they got nothing or next to nothing for it. And so now they have to start from scratch all over again. Yeah. Uh, Emily, you, you spend time thinking about this, not just here in Detroit, but in other places, as you, as you uh, mentioned, Talk about the way in which we should be thinking about how people get compensated when government says, hey, we're going to do something different in this in this area. And you live there. Uh, that that does happen. Eminent domain is as old as uh, as government in this country, really. Uh, but it doesn't always look like this. 
Yeah. Wow. That's a big question. <laughs> I, I don't know if I'm qualified to answer it, <laughs> okay. um, but I would but say, <laughs> <laughs> I would say, first of all, that there are a lot of really incredible, important thinkers who have done a lot of work on yes. reparations work and what that should look like that I would point people towards <laughs> before me. But I would also <laughs> say that any conversation should first start with extremely robust community engagement and that is not really what we have seen so far in the conversations in Detroit about the 375 removal. So um, I'm hopeful for you know how the process is going to look moving forward. And mm -hmm. I would just say that that should really be the first and foremost priority in everyone's mind. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jaman, the, the why why was it possible for the government to do what it did without? adequate compensation. That's one of the questions that I get a lot mm -hmm. when we talk about this is, well, you know, as I said, this happens uh, frequently in our mm -hmm. country that the government decides they've got to do something else with the land that you're doing something with. Mm -hmm. uh, why was, why were Black Bottom and Paradise Valley different? And I think I know the answer, mm -hmm. but but I want to have you talk about the history there. So of course it is the, it is the um, um, relative power level of the African-American community at that time. They do not have the political power, the political strength to fight back against this uh, encroachment and destruction of their neighborhoods. But they do attempt, they do fight in every way possible. One of the ways that I was able to find out a lot of information about um, Black Bottom and Paradise Valley are the lawsuits. I mm -hmm. went to the law cases um, and there were a number of significant lawsuits, some of which made it all the way to the Supreme Court and they're eminent domain lawsuits. And in many cases, they're unjust compensation lawsuits. Mm -hmm. um, the city is offering unjust compensation. In many cases, the city will come back way later. So the city will tell the, the owner, look, we're gonna condemn your land, and we're gonna make you an offer based on present day um, market levels of your land. And then the city won't revisit that site for another eight, nine years, and then offer them what it's worth at that time. In many cases, by that time, the owner has been ticketed over and over and has destroyed his own property in some cases or walked away from the property rather than, and we, we remember the walking away that happened after the Great Recession. Mm -hmm. Well, that happened during this time period. And so now they're being offered a, a payment for a vacant lot. That wasn't what the land was originally. Me, mm -hmm. These people will sue. And, me, and in almost every case, they'll win. They'll defeat, they'll win against the city and the city will appeal mm -hmm. and then appeal and then appeal and the, and the lawsuits will fall off because these um, um, plaintiffs, these landowners can't continue fighting against the city and keep fighting all of these appeals. But the few that make it to the end will, will win, but they're removed from class action status. So there's a class action lawsuit. One of the um, cases is a class action lawsuit, Cassis versus the city of Detroit, but it's the, the, the eminent domain, I'm sorry, the um, uh, class action status is removed by the courts. So that means everybody has to sue on their own. On their own. And so because of that, we don't get this robust um, compensation for all of the landowners and even maybe something to help the people who were renters. We don't get that because the city fights and fights and, and appeals every time they lose. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's start today with Alberta in Detroit. Alberta, welcome to the show. Good morning. Hey, how are you? 
morning. Good morning to two of my favorite heroes. <laughs> That's so nice, Albert. And Steven. <laughs> and Emily, thank you for your labor in this project. My grandfather, I want to say, owned a home on Elmwood. And it was a boarding home. Hmm. And my aunt started with my mother, who married someone who came to board there from Georgia, my dad, Willie George. Then her sister, Aunt Vivian, married someone who came to stay at the boarding home, Uncle Johnny. <laughs> and then my Aunt Ruthie married someone who came up from Mississippi and stayed in the boarding home, Uncle Arthur. <laughs> now, what do you think about that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so tell me what happened to the boarding house. What was the outcome when they, when they changed oh, the neighborhood? Yeah. Yeah. My grandfather was offered a buyout of sorts, and he refused to take a dime because he did not trust the government. Mm-hmm. And so what did they do? Did they just take it from him? They just took it, yep. Mm-hmm. But he, he would, they did offer it, but because he did not trust government, he wouldn't take it. Mm-hmm. Wow, wow. Uh, Alberta, that's a, that's, a really, that's a really powerful example mm-hmm. of, of two things. One... The brutality of what happened uh, to that area and and how people were not given a choice or were not allowed to participate in the choices about what happened. But the other is this this rich family history that 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 you have uh, over there that I think is so common for people who lived in that area to talk about the things that happened and the things that they remember and the ways that their families changed uh, because of where they lived and who they lived around and who came and went from those areas. I mean, that's one of the, that's one of the really powerful significances of mm-hmm. uh, Black Bottom and, and Paradise Valley. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alberta, I'm really glad uh, I'm really glad you called today. Let's go next to Frank in South Lyon. Frank, welcome to the show. Hey, good morning, Stephen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I wanted to say my, you know, I was born in the mid '50s and grew up in the '60s during this big interstate expansion. And uh, my dad worked for the auto industry. And you know, my, I just got this impression from that gen, my parents' generation, that. The interstate highway systems were like the best thing ever. <laughs> I mean, it was, and and so, and I remember my dad in particular. We went down to the auto show at Cobo Hall, and um, there was a ramp that he actually went out of his way to get onto the lodge, I think, and there was a ramp that you could take directly to Cobo Hall. Yes, and he was just thrilled with that. <laughs> and I think that the you know the the same thing you know that, that that they took that attitude of this you know this wonderfulness of the automobile and anything that would support the automobile they then co-opted that into you know these nefarious uh, uh, plans to uh, you know rid the city of the slums. Hmm. Yeah, uh, f- Frank, that's I, I, an important point to make because it it reflects the way that the outside world from Detroit was seeing these things when they happened. Uh, The freeways were built to, in part, facilitate the growth of the suburbs, to make it easy for people to get from Detroit to other places, either because uh, they wanted to live there or because uh, they were working there. And the idea that you could do this quickly and, and efficiently was the power of those arguments. And it completely washed over the idea that in order to do that, 
you were destroying people's homes. You were destroying people's businesses. Uh, I, I, I say often when I encounter people here in the city who are going home uh, to the suburbs that they should think as they're driving through neighborhoods that mm-hmm. those neighborhoods once were whole, mm-hmm. uh, that they weren't split by as many freeways as we have here, and we've got more than most cities here in Detroit. Um, but think about the people who lost because of that convenience that, that we wanted so badly. Uh, I Go say, ahead, Jamal. I, yeah, I, I want to say that um, originally the federal government's plan for interstate highway, when Eisenhower is the, is the president of the United States, this idea of, of um, having an interstate highway system was not mainly to go through cities. It was to connect. Them. It was to connect. Yes, to connect the country, and in, in, in case of military and moving um, 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 goods from one state to another, is in case of war. Eisenhower had seen it in World War II, particularly in Germany, and so he wanted something like that. The mayors will lobby the federal government to make it. In st- inside of the cities because mm-hmm. that means massive federal funds to the cities. So they're really looking out for federal money coming to their cities and they know that if these freeways come to their cities, that means federal funds coming to their cities. So the reason why most of the interstates aren't in the rural or in the outskirts of cities, the reason why most of them run through major cities is because mayors and um, city leaders lobbied the federal government to change their idea and make it run right through cities. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, really appreciate the call uh, and the comments. Let's go next to Deborah in Detroit. Deborah, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi, Steve. Thanks hey. for taking my call. Sure. And I think the most important thing you can do today is to make the two projects that Jaman and your other guests are talking about, make it public. I've been researching the history of education in Detroit, mm-hmm. and been at most of the libraries and have not heard about them. So please put that on your website. Secondly, um, I think when we talk about what's happening at three, in you know the 375 area, it's really important to think about the education institutions that we've lost. And somehow that needs to be mm. front and center. The first first school with an integrated faculty was right between Hastings and um, Rivard on Lafayette. Mm. And it it should be known. So that's my comment. You know, Mm. let's hear more about the history of education and what we're going to do again to make it front and center. So thank you. Deborah, I really appreciate the call and the comment. I'm not sure what yeah. school that is? So, uh, so Fannie Richards' house is on Rivard between Lafayette or was. Uh, Fannie Richards was the first black public school teacher at an integrated school. Her home was located in Black Bottom. Um, she begins teaching in Detroit in the 1860s, hmm. but she um, teaches at Everett School in 1871. And so she begins teaching at the first integrated public school in the city of Detroit in 1871, every school is in Black Bottom, not exactly in that location, but her home was in that location. The school we lose in the area that she's talking about is Barstow Elementary. Barstow Elementary is now Lafayette Central Park. It's the big empty space in between 1300 Lafayette and and Ducharme Place. So there's a big empty park there. Mm -hmm. That was Barstow Elementary. That's the elementary school that was attended by none other than Coleman Young. So he went to that elementary school, but that 
school is gone. It was wiped out as part of the Urban Renewal Project, and a school was built across the street, Chrysler Elementary, which is attached to the Lafayette Park Project because it was an attempt to have the Lafayette Park new middle-class and upper-class residents who come to this neighborhood to not have to go to the former Black Bottom schools. Yeah, yeah. And you can see the Barstow School in the Black Bottom Street View yes, exhibit and the whole community around it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, one of the one of my favorite facts about Fanny Richards is that she helped fund the lawsuit that desegregated the Detroit Public School District. That's right. That's right. Um, and I think, yeah, I can't agree more. Yeah. <laughs> it, comes out of, it comes out of that area. Mm-hmm. You know, before we go back to our, our listeners, I want to talk just a little bit about the existing community there. Mm-hmm. So Black Bottom and Paradise Valley go away. We get I-375, but we also get Lafayette Park. We also get the Elmwood communities, mm-hmm. uh, Hyde Park, mm-hmm. uh, everything going east, mm-hmm. which, Jamon, while you and I are growing up in Detroit in the 70s and 80s, that's what's being built. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I spent a lot of my childhood, in fact, living in that area. Mm-hmm. What, should, what should we be thinking about those things now? These are, these are in some cases, some of the most integrated mm-hmm. and interesting neighborhoods in the city, but they were created at the expense of these black neighborhoods. That's right. My father was from Black Bottom, and then as an adult, he moved back into the Lafayette Park neighborhood. So I would visit him on weekends. You know, we uh, we we would be with our father on the weekends, and so I was in that neighborhood. Didn't I? I, I wasn't a little older when I found out the full history of that neighborhood, but I, w- I knew that neighborhood as growing up, as you said, in the 70s and 80s, as Orleans mm-hmm. was being built and um, the Martin Luther King homes were uh, coming on online. So I, I was, I was a, a child, but I was growing up. And so what we ought to be thinking about is the people who are in that neighborhood, unlike what was thought about when Kobo was the mayor. Mm-hmm. Kobo did not care about the fact that these people were working class, 80% of them were renters, and he destroyed this place. When the federal government offered funds to destroy Black Bottom, they also offered funds to build new structures for working class people to return. Kobo refused to accept any federal funds for to build structures for those people to return, so he only accepted private development. So Lafayette Park is comes out of that so that the people who were lived in Black Bottom overwhelmingly cannot move into Lafayette Park. So now whatever happens here, we ought to be thinking about the people who are there. And that includes Lafayette Park, but also includes the Martin Luther King homes, the Walter P. Ruther co-ops, the Hyde Park neighborhood. Mm-hmm. We need to be thinking about the people who are there. We need to be thinking about the Greek town businesses. We need to be thinking about particularly the small businesses. We, you know, of course, there's a major business in Greek town, but there's smaller restaurants and shops that are there that are going to be affected by what's going to be happening at 375. So we ought to not do what happened before where the people who were already there were were an afterthought or didn't weren't cared about at all and were bulldozed over. We ought to be thinking about what the group of people who are already there, the businesses, the schools. We have Ralph Bunch um, School there, which was formerly Duffield Elementary. Mm-hmm. We need to be thinking about the schools. We need to be thinking about the institutions, the churches, St. John's Presbyterian Church, the first black Presbyterian church in, in the city of Detroit. Second Baptist Church, which is in Greektown, the oldest black church in the state of Michigan, the first school for black people stationed on the Underground Railroad. 
Calvary Baptist Church right next to Elmwood Cemetery, another church that was forced to relocate because of destruction of Black Bottom, Martin Luther King High School, which is in the former Black Bottom neighborhood, one of the premier institutions, educational institutions in the city of Detroit. We ought to be thinking about these institutions, businesses, um, residents, um, and neighborhoods and before anything is done, unlike what happened in the 1950s. And Emily, mm-hmm. this is to your point about community engagement mm-hmm. up front, uh, and that's not what we're seeing. Yeah, I, w- I want to add also a really cool piece of history mm-hmm. that I learned mm-hmm. in doing the research for the Black Bottom Street View um, in the later phases of urban renewal in the Elmwood Park projects, and especially mm-hmm. I think Elmwood 3, um, mm-hmm. there were community advisory councils that were appointed um, as a result of community advocacy. They Mm -hmm. fought for those councils to exist and to influence the process of development. And one of the things that they fought for was Elmwood Park Plaza to be affordable senior housing, Mm -hmm. the Elmwood Park Branch Library Mm -hmm. to exist there, Mm -hmm. and for there to be a grocery store in that development. And so I think we can also think about what our ancestors fought for <laughs> and how to preserve those things yeah, you know right. Elmwood Park Plaza just got converted to market rate housing market maybe rate. like yeah. five years ago right. um, you know we, and we, we let that happen and I think we need to really be thinking about you know there's there's there are examples to draw from that are literally right in front of our eyes mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. and awesome. I, I mean I can remember mm-hmm. all of that happening I lived in the area mm-hmm. when that branch of the public library opened I was there mm-hmm. the first day I think it was seven or eight wow. uh, that grocery store was a Farmer Jack when mm-hmm. it opened, I and I, I remember, remember being able to walk mm-hmm. over there to get to get groceries. It, it really was about creating a community to repair what had been destroyed, mm-hmm. and it would never have done that. But it it moved us forward uh, in a way. And you're right, if you're going to do it in a way that includes people, you've got to do that up front. You have to have people at the table. Okay, we need to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this wonderful conversation with Jamon Jordan and Emily Kutil. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. For the next several weeks here on Detroit Today, on Fridays, we will be talking about the project to reimagine I-375. Uh, let's go next to um, John in Gross Point. John, welcome to the show. Stephen, thanks. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I, I appreciate this conversation. I had we used to have a very large business in the corridor, um, and the freeway actually went around us um, in the fifties. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I did not know about this. Uh, you know, how Lafayette Park area came to be until I picked up a book called Profile of a Metropolis, a case book published in 1962 by Wayne State University Press. And the first story is the discussion of how this neighborhood uh, came to be and in its current form. And the, of course, you know, it was, uh, I mean, our, we had property there from the 1850s to, to about 10 years ago. Uh, but the, re- the way that that neighborhood came to be was, uh, you know, of course, initially immigrants, waves of immigrants, and eventually it became uh, a, an African-American neighborhood, mm-hmm. maybe in the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, almost all renters. And when the freeway system, the vision for the freeway system was laid out actually in the pre-war period, not 
the interstate, you know, not the I was effectuated by the Eisenhower administration, but it, it was envisioned and planned in the 1930s in Detroit. Uh, and Mayor Cobo uh, indeed is one of the major villains here sure. and and deliberately uh, targeted Hastings Street uh, for the new freeway. And That's right. uh, and of course, because the landowners were renting to other people, they were the ones that uh, were notified and participated sure. in the conversation, participated in the con in the condemnation proceeds, and so forth. And the, of course, the renters were just turned out and and largely, you know, hardworking, busy people, not aware of what's going on. And freeways always take the path of least political resistance, and that was it. Yeah, uh, so- and. So, John, as, as someone who's, whose family had a business there and, and Freeway went around it, what, what do you make of the opportunity, I guess, or the challenge to try to make other people whole? Well, you know, the question, Stephen, is always who do you make whole? Do you make people who – do you make the renters whole or do you make the landowners whole? And our society tends to make the landowners whole. It wasn't until Coleman Young was elected that, that – you know, that residents were really brought into the conversation in, in a way that, you know, sure. and treated, treat, treated as voters instead of landowners. Uh, and, you know, you, you look at the difference between the way that neighborhood evolved uh, and initially Lafayette Park was not built for the people who were displaced. Mm-hmm. The latter suburb of the latter developments that you mentioned a moment ago mm-hmm. uh, in, in the eastern toward Elmwood mm-hmm. were and those were all built king homes and, mm-hmm. and, and those sure. various co-ops mm-hmm. that evolved uh, as you go east toward the cemetery were, right. were evolved as, you know, in part of a neighborhood conversation uh, and, and, you know, for the residents of the city. Yeah. Uh, but I guess with respect to 375, you know, it's really hard to uh, – I, I, I frankly don't know how you put – Humpty Dumpty back together. You can't. It's it's going to have to be something new. And I think Detroit is, 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 you know, we, we've got our, our population and our residents and we're going to have, I think in restoring land and opportunity and, 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 and presumably uh, 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 residential opportunities, business opportunities, uh, I, I, I think Detroiters are going to move there. Yeah, um, yeah. I, 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 I hope that's you... right. Yeah, I don't. I, I don't know. Well, I mean, you, you've got to. You've got to involve people, and that's the thing that we're not. That we're not getting to. I think, uh, John, your example is 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 perfect for the conversation that we're having, uh, Jamon. And I think, yeah, I think John said something that's really important that people really don't know, and they really ought to know. Black Bottom, acre for acre, is the most historically rich culturally significant area in the whole state of Michigan's history. It is an area where, of course, indigenous people were in what we call Detroit first. The French arrive, followed by the French, the British will take over the city of Detroit after the Seven Years' War. All of them are ribbon farm owners, but Africans, of course, are brought in slavery. They will fight against slavery. The Underground Railroad's history is there. Immigrants, first Irish immigrants, are there uh, before they begin moving to the west side in what is now Corktown. German immigrants will follow. Polish immigrants, um, Greek and Italian immigrants, the first Arab immigrants, Syrian and Lebanese immigrants, Mm -hmm. when they come to the city of Detroit, they're living in Black Bottom. 
And so, and then of course the African-Americans come during the Great Migration in large numbers. You have all of this history. If you just go back a couple of generations, there is almost no group of people in who are now have some relationship to the city of Detroit. There's very few people who can't trace who some part of their history there. and don't have mm-hmm. roots in what was Black Bottom. Yeah. And so Black Bottom is so, so historically rich. The, um, the churches that still exist. So you have Church of Our Holy Family, which sits on Hastings, Chrysler Service Drive. That's the Italian Catholic Church, founded in 1910. Mm-hmm. Uh, Annunciation Greek Orthodox Church sits down the street from it at Lafayette in Chrysler Service Drive. St. Mary's German Catholic Church is in Greektown. It's the oldest German Catholic Church in the whole state of Michigan. It's in Greektown. It's the oldest thing in Greektown. And down the street from it is Second Baptist Church, the oldest black church in the state of Michigan. All of this history is in that area. And if we go right across from Eastern Market, you got Historic Trinity Lutheran Church, which is this German Lutheran church across the street from it is um, Old St. John's, which started out as a Protestant evangelical German church. St. Joseph's, which is the German, second German Catholic church in the city of Detroit. You got all this history of all these different ethnic groups who all lived in this neighborhood that we now know as Lafayette Park, Elmwood, um, Greektown, but it was Black Bottom. And we've got to account for all of that in, yes, this, right. in this rethinking of it. Okay. Right. Uh, Jamon Jarden mm-hmm. and Emily Kudel, great to have both of you here to help fill in the blanks of the history of this area and how it fits with this project. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Thank for you. Having Thanks for having us. Detroit Today is produced by Sam Corey and Nick Austin. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. Our assistant producer is Maddie Boyer. Our music is by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. And podcast editing is by David Lyons. Our program director is Adam Fox. Detroit Today is a production of WDET in Detroit. And you can support the show by leaving a rating or a comment. Thanks for listening. <laughs>